Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Uh, as Eric mentioned, we're wrapping up the short series we've been doing on the church. And really, the goal of this series has been just to kind of set the tone and set the backdrop of what we're going to be doing this fall and moving forward as a church. And I hope that this sermon this morning will connect some dots. You may hear some things uh, you've heard before. You may hear some things echoed from the last few weeks. But I want to connect some dots for us so that you have a clearer understanding of what we're doing, what we need to be doing together as God's people. So we talked about this idea, I love my church. And we talked about that we don't say those words glibly. That our creator God, who so faithfully loved Israel, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who so faithfully loved, he bled for, he died for his church to establish us as a community, that, that the Father, the Son, the Spirit of God are calling us to be his people together in this time, together in this place, serving this generation. This church is first and foremost Christ's church, but it's your church, it's my church, and I hope that there's a ring of ownership in the way that you say, this is my church. It's so important that we internalize ownership and what God's doing amongst us. The first week, we talked about being wholly devoted in a faithful covenanting kind of love to God and to one another, that God wants us to truly be for one another and sold out for one another, and not to be transactional in any way, but deeply rooted in covenantal love with each other, faithful as God is faithful, right? In week two, we talked about Christ's call that we love one another, that we love as Christ loved, that by this all men will know we are Christ's disciples if we love one another. We shouldn't assume anything. We should work and do the labor of love. The church is to build itself up in love uh, with everyone doing their part in that. Then last week, we talked about realizing our calling, our gifts, the ministry that God has given each individual one of us. Every part must be working. That God's design is that through his church, he fill the universe with the glory of Christ. And so we don't do that alone. We do that together as a church. Everyone is essential. Everyone is needed. Everyone must understand God's call on their life. And I was thinking this week, you know, there's no other institution that God is going to raise up to be his church on earth. There's no other plan C or D or E or F that God has raised us up for a purpose. And it's his purpose of redemption. And we have a vital role to serve in this time and place. If this church or any church loses its way, God will remove our lampstand and he'll raise up another church He'll raise up another people, right? Israel lost its way, and God raised up the new Israel, the church. The Jews lost their way. God called the Gentiles and grafted them in, right? The Pharisees lost their way, so Jesus went to the sinners and tax collectors and befriended them and involved them in his mission. If mature adults don't grasp God's purpose and plan, he'll raise up babes, is what Jesus said. And if not even babes will respond, 
young people to the kingdom of God, he'll cause even the stones to cry out. But I was thinking this week, no matter what, God's purpose will prevail. And optimally, ideally, with us as part of it. But he will prevail. Jesus in Matthew 16, 18 tells Simon, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He will prevail. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we have a picture of the culmination of all of human history. And where are things going to end up? Well, God highly exalted Jesus and gave Jesus a name that's above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We know what the future is all about. We know the trajectory of history. We know what God's design is and that it will be accomplished, that God is sovereign to accomplish his purpose. If you are in Christ, if you are a part of Christ's church, which means that you can say with integrity, I love my church, you have a church identity, we are the champions. Thank you, Queen. We are the champions. Uh, We're the winners. Uh, We're the victors. Uh, In that day, we are going to shine with Christ, having been faithful as God is faithful, having been loving as Christ loved, having been servants as God, Jesus became servant. Uh, I want to be on the right side of history, don't you? And I want our church and you to be on the right side of history. I want God to say to me, now I'm just going to put this in a personal way, but I want God to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, don't you? I want to hear God say, this is my son, this is my child. He listened He lived his life on mission. With him, I'm well pleased. You know, we've always wanted to hear those words, but imagine hearing them from God's lips. That's what this is about. I saw this crazy verse this last week. It's not really crazy, but, you know, every week, it's like you read the word, it's like, okay, this has been right here in front of me all this time, and I never contemplate, I never, but I saw this verse that's tucked away in the, 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 the last chapters of Romans. Romans 15, 16, the apostle Paul is describing himself this way, that he's a minister, which is the word for servant, a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, the nations, serving as a priest of the gospel. Priests connect people to God and priests handle sacred things and they minister to people. Well, what's the sacred thing that's in our possession? The gospel, right? And we're to minister to the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, to people. Uh, You know, Paul, like he's a servant. He's a priest of the gospel. Uh, We're a kingdom of priests is what Peter tells us in in, uh, 1 Peter 2. What is God's purpose? It's that the nations may be an acceptable offering, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking, here's the Apostle Paul talking about his identity and how he sees himself as God's servant in the world. He has set his sights, first of all, on entire nations of Gentiles 
uh, being brought before God on the last day as kind of like an offering. So most people, they're happy if they're saved. You're like, I hope I'm saved. I hope I got my uh, eternal heaven insurance or whatever and that I'm going to be, you know. Most people, that's how they think of salvation. But I think how more people need to think of salvation is how Paul thinks of it. I, I wish more people would say, you know, is my spouse saved? Will I be standing before the Lord one day and will I be able to present those that are most closest to me, like my wife or my husband, that I'll be able to present them as an offering to God and say, here's somebody that I touched with the gospel, that I was a priest, a servant, I ministered to them, I was a link in the chain of what you wanted to do in their life, and and here they are, Lord. How about your family, your children? Could you imagine standing before God one day, not just with your wife, but your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and this whole, right, and say, this is my offering, my family, my wife, my husband, you know, right? Imagine being able to offer up your coworkers, you know, uh, uh, your colleagues, your team that you lead, your class that you teach, your peers, your neighbors, here's some neighbors, or here's my neighborhood. Or imagine my subdivision or borough or my city. Here's Springfield folks. Or here's Illinoisans, my state. Or my country, here's some Americans. Here's a nation. Or how about nations? Paul's saying, I want to offer nations, Gentiles, as an acceptable offering before God on that last day. I started thinking about Jeff and Laura Wilhite, just as an example, that Jeff grew up in our church, uh, was a Timothy of our church, uh, was, was mentored and loved and discipled at our church, and has gone on far beyond, right? But, but Jeff and Laura both, as a couple, have a ministry with Pioneer Bible Translators. And Pioneer Bible Translators takes the Bible and translates it into languages that don't have scriptures. And some of them don't even have a written language, so you have to create the written language in order to give them the written word. And so you imagine how much work that is. It's a lifetime work just to reach one group of people with one language and just to do, right? But there are people groups of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions that don't even have the word yet that they're trying to bring the word to. But imagine one day knowing that there are hundreds of thousands of people in heaven or even an entire nation celebrating their salvation and knowing that that was your offering, that you were a vital link, that God used you as his instrument, not exclusively maybe, but he used you, and here's the fruit of it all, a nation of people that know Jesus that otherwise wouldn't have. To know that you were faithful, loving, that you were a servant that discovered your part, that you were a priest of the gospel. You made your life matter. You brought the word to this group or that group. You know, most Christians sadly think the only offering that God cares about is Visa, MasterCard, or cash. And sadly, that's all kinds, the only kind of offering some churches talk about. But here is a different kind of way to think of offering. Imagine making an offering acceptable to God of gospel fruit. Uh, What about you offering your body as a living sacrifice, spending yourself in service 
to God's capital P purpose, being a capital P priest, the best kind you can be, a, a priest of the gospel. Imagine all of us catching that drift of offering, right? So I want to uh, wrap this service, or I'm sorry, this series up with a challenge. I want to connect some things. I'm going to restate some things that maybe you've heard before and are familiar with, maybe not. But the challenge is essentially this, that right now, at this time, it's the only time we have, for this generation that we're a part of, the challenge is that you wouldn't just be a healthy disciple, a healthy heaven-bound disciple, praise God, that's where you got to start, but more than that, that you would become a disciple maker, that you would become a disciple multiplier that there would be an exponential offering that you will one day offer before God beyond yourself of the thing that God values most, which is money. No, it's people. It's people, guys. It's people. That's the offering, starting with yourself and continuing with everyone around that God wants to receive at the end of the age. All the other stuff, gold will just be pavement, all right? So how do we do it? How do we begin to multiply the mission of God in our lives, in our world. I want to say some practical things. Our first concern is the Great Commission. The Great Commission, uh, I like to think of the Great Commission as going wide. We are into football season. And in football, you know, they call these audibles, sometimes in the moment, on the line, you know, or sometimes in a huddle. But we got to get some audibles for ourselves here as God's people. And one of those is, let's go wide. Let's go wider than we've ever gone before, helping people find God. Great Commission is all about going wider, helping people find God. This is what it looks like. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go. Therefore, make disciples of all the Gentiles, of all the nations. There's no limit to this thing. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. God has given us the authority and he has given us his very presence to do the widest possible ministry to the ends of the earth, to the edges of the universe, to fill his glory and to proclaim light and darkness. If that doesn't make you say amen, I don't know what else I got for you this morning. But that is our call, right? Going wide helping people find God. To fulfill the Great Commission, we have to orient our lives differently around going where there are people who most need God. Going to church, yes, there are people in this church, in this building, amongst us, that need to find God, and that is not to be neglected. But we have to go where there are the most amounts of people that have not yet found God. And that's probably not in these four walls. Going to church is not the place to fulfill mission. Going as the church is more in line with how we go wide and accomplish. We've got to go as the church, right? So this is as much of an interpersonal challenge as it is a geographical challenge. Geographically, we have to go geographically to other places where we've not been. But interpersonally, what that means is we have to get into relationships and conversations with people that make us uncomfortable, with people that we've never been in conversation 
or friendship or relationship with ever before. We have to get into interpersonal, face-to-face interactions with people far from God and not just be a holy club or a holy huddle or whatever. So geographically, you can think of like some concentric rings of influence. So uh, when, when Jesus broke this down for the disciples, he says, you guys need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then out here in Judea, which they were like, oh, Okay, and then Samaria, like, you know, whoa, wait a minute, those dogs? Yeah, okay, those people too, okay. And then all the way to the ends of the earth, you mean even to the barbarians and the people that are like on edge? Yeah, to the ends of the earth. That's how Jesus made it practical for the disciples. And then in the book of Acts, that's what you see the church do. They were in Jerusalem, Pentecost, Judea, Samaria. They went all the way to Athens, all the way to Rome, to the ends of the earth, right? Nobody, there was no place that they weren't willing to go. So think of it, Jerusalem is where there are people who are like you who live where you already are. You go to school with them, you go to work with them, they sit at your dinner table, you have fun together, you do sports with them, you do hobbies with them. Uh, Your Jerusalem is the place where you probably are already established. And in that circle, there are more people than you can even imagine that haven't yet found God. They may know his name, but they haven't really, right? And they're already warm to you. You already have a relationship with them. There's no interpersonal challenge there, really, because you've already got uh, credibility. You already have a, you know, a safety net. Of, you know, like They're going to be open to your witness. But then Judea are people who are near us, uh, who maybe we're not in personal relationship with, but they're near us. And they're in our neighborhood, perhaps. And they share the same basic worldview and, and same basic values and background. And so who are your neighbors, people down the street? You could develop a relationship with them with just a little bit of effort. If you just take some time or make some effort. You know, there's a Judea, there's a Samaria, which are people who are by us but may not be like us very much at all. They may have different values or different backgrounds or different ethnicities or different economics or different lots of things. I've been in Springfield since 2000, and uh, I noticed that in Springfield... If you just say these things, and I'm not going to unpack them for you, but if you say these things, people identify themselves as one of these things. There are Northsiders in Springfield. Some of you are Northsiders. Uh, there are Westsiders in Springfield. And you think of the West Side and the expansion of the West Side of Springfield, and there's certain things a colored way that you kind of look at that and think, okay, there's a group of people. There are downtowners, right? There are east siders in Springfield. And the longer you've been in Springfield, the more loaded some of these things are. There are also south siders. And I always like to say that Lakeside is more south side than south side Christian church. We're we're on the south, right? (laughs) But there are real differences uh, in a lot of different ways. Ethnically, demographically, economically, right? So what's it look like, you know, to, and then you go out, you know, you go out past the edges of the city into the rural, you know, that's a whole other ballgame. I'm just kidding. I, I love the rural folks. I was out at Berlin for five years, so I know what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. But, but there are real differences, and we need to be thinking about these rings of influence. And then, of course, there are places like Athens where there are spiritually minded people but 
who do not maybe profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. I was thinking about uh, 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 Samuel and Renee Nassif, and I was thinking about Christian Student Fellowship and how they're out on UIS's campus, and there are people from all over the world coming to the campus at UIS. And this year, there is a ton of students from India that have, some of them have Hindu background, and they're spiritual. They're very open spiritually to another God and to talking about Jesus and the Bible. But he's just one of like probably tens of thousands of gods, but they're open spiritually to the conversation. But then our job is to say Jesus is uniquely the Christ and Lord and God of the universe, and he's the, the only true God and the only God. So we got a lot of work to do there, but they're spiritually open if we would. What's it look like to engage spiritually minded people? Paul in Athens reasoned with them. He talked with them. He came day after day. And, of course, there's Rome. And there are people that are just in power, but they are very hostile to the things of God. And they use their power and influence to create a, a, a stumbling block, uh, obstacles to faith. And what's it look like to, to engage people in power and influence? And that's one of the reasons I was excited to come to Springfield is to think of being a city church in the capital in a state that in some ways you look at it and you say, this is a very godless place and people are always leaving, but I'm a missionary here. So what's that, you know, what's it look like to go to Rome or the equivalent? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like going wider and getting into uncomfortable relationships more than we've ever done before. And what do you do? You maximize conversations in those relationships. We have to learn to like really spend time with people and practice hospitality, their table, our table, or go to a restaurant, share meals, share stories, listen, understand, explore where people are coming from, what's their background, why do they believe what they believe, why are they hostile about the things they're hostile about, do we even know them? And so what's the relationship with God as Father? What's the relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do they know the power of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit can mentor and sanctify and, and heal them? Do they know about the church as the kingdom of God, the body of Christ? Do they know how Christ's gospel is the answer to all the things in the world that, they concern, that they're concerned about? If we don't go and get into conversations, all of that is just kind of left on the table and, and is neglected. And I want you and me to think about relationships, conversations, and getting out, right? All right, that's one level of this uh, call that we have. Now, here's a second level. Our second concern is not just the Great Commission, it's the Great Commandment. So Jesus says, teach people to obey everything I've commanded. What did Jesus teach? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The curriculum for growth is the great commandments, right? It's love that we have. To, so we're going wider than ever before with conversations. But then we're going deeper with each other than ever before by helping people follow Jesus. So to fulfill the great commandments, likewise, we have to reorient our lives away from selfishness toward love. We have to orient our lives around loving the people that God loves in order to be his church. The highest aspiration is that we love God with the totality of our being. Not just with our head because we love to do knowledge in the church. But knowledge can 
puff up and, and build up pride. And so knowledge is important, and by knowledge we're transformed, but it's got to go beyond the head to the heart. Do we love the people that God loves? Do we care? Do, do we have an impulse for mission? Uh, you know, God had one son, and he made him a missionary. Do we have the heart of God right there, you know? Do we obey with our hands and feet? Do we go places with our feet? Do we serve with our hands? Is this love of God just kind of an ethereal, self-centered thing, or is it a holistic, transformative reality in our life? But then also loving people uh, as we love ourselves. Well, you already love yourself. Congratulations. Let's go to the next level. Love others as you love yourself. So how do you make love practical? How do you make finding God practical? Well, you get into conversations. How do you make love practical? You've got to create some circles where you obey the commandments of love. I think the first circle you draw isn't around yourself because love for self is a given. It's not a new commandment. It's not anything that's right. No, love others. So where's the first circle? Your marriage, you know, uh, the person that you're intimately in a relationship with. Maybe you're going to marry him one day. Like That's where you have to start practicing the love of God, right? His kind of love, not your kind. What's the next circle? Your family. How you love your children. You want them to be an offering, right? Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. You got to draw a bigger circle than that. You need to be in spiritual relationships where there can be some accountability and, and some teeth. You know, you're not just the body of Christ, you and your wife or your marriage or your kids. Like you're part of a larger community of faith where iron sharpens iron, where the body builds itself up in love. You know, uh, what's your circle of kingdom? Your circle of church. You have to have a place where you can say, this is my church. Where's your church? Are you floating around? Can't just be transactional. As love grows, your influence grows. And how deeply are you reflecting Christ's love in these different kinds of circles? Beyond the church, there's social circles that you're in. There are larger church circles, obviously. There's work circles, hobby circles, play circles, Sports circles, uh, professional circles, neighborhood circles and gatherings, community circles and gatherings. You have really no excuse to say there's no circle in which you can practice the love of God. If you can't find a circle, draw a circle, okay? You have no excuse. There is somebody that you can love, unless you are like, I don't even know what you would be. You are connected. Draw a circle and live out the commandment. And love God and love people in that circle. And, and let the, the, the church build itself up in love. There has to be a, a practical implementation to this thing. It can't just be you drifting off, freelancing it, right? That's what we've been talking about in this series. So we're going to go wide. We're going to go deep in love. Our third concern is we'll call it the great collaboration. The great, commandment is you, or great commission is you go. The great commandment is that you love. Uh, the great collaboration, we like to call that going long. That God wants to do something that's not just for this generation, but he wants us to impact all future generations. So John 17 is what a lot of people are starting to call the great collaboration. It's like a commandment, but it's Jesus expressing his desire for what he wants the church to be and do. And this is what he prays. He says, I'm praying for those who believe in me, the 12 disciples, that that, uh, that those who will believe in me through their word, through their preaching, the church, 
May they all be one, the church, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you've given me so that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one. But I in them and you and me, that the world may be complete, that they may be completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's two things mentioned in here about how people know that we are God's disciples. First of all, that we're abiding in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're abiding in that relationship that God has opened us up to include us in, that we love God, right, with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. We love the Father. We love the Son. We've welcomed the Spirit to sanctify us, but also that we're one with each other in the midst of being one with God, that we're abiding with God, and we're also kind of abiding in love with each other. And there's, there's a oneness, a reality. The Lord our God is one. Uh, we're one with him and with each other. We are his body, his people. So going long is about helping people find their capital P purpose. So our lives are all filled with many purposes. There's functional purposes. There's necessary purposes. There's things we all have to do. We have to pay the bills. We have to feed the family. You know, there's things that we do. We've got to have fun. We've got to enjoy the gift of life that God's given us. So we all lock into different purposes, right? But how oriented are our lives around God's capital P purpose? His supreme desire is that not just all people would be reconciled to himself, but that we'd be reconciled to each other, that we would become one together as his body in this time and place serving his capital P purpose. God has something very big for us to accomplish. And he wants the whole world reconciled to himself. So how do you reconcile the whole world? How does God do that? How do we participate in that? I'll I'll tell you something. We don't do it alone. We do it together. We need more collaboration than ever before, not less. Now how do we collaborate? What is it that we do together? To accomplish God's capital P purpose. All right, so here it is. If I want to help people find God, I'm going to get into conversations. If I'm going to help people follow Jesus and I'm going to grow in love, I'm going to do it. I'm going to create some circles where I can, where the body, where I can be accountable for love and demonstrate love and there can be covenant. But if I want to reach the world and and help people fulfill their capital P purpose, we need to think in terms of something that is a new word. It's not super new, but it's new to a lot of people, cohorts. Everybody's in a cohort these days. The little kids that go to school, when you're in college, you get into these cohorts. Professionally, you get into cohorts. What's a cohort? A cohort is a learning community where two or more people come together to learn how to do something maybe that they've never done before. Two people come together or more. It could be two people. It could be 10. It could be 12 could be a thousand people. But we need to come together to figure out how we are to serve God's purpose in our time for this generation. And, and so if you want to go fast, you can go alone. But if we really want to go far, if we want to go long, we need to go together with others. So when it comes to making disciples, Jesus never did it alone. He immediately, his first priority was to gather 12 oddballs together that had very different, and he made them one with himself and each other, 
And he invested in the apostles. They, he taught them how to go on mission together. And they went out and they tried things and they'd fall on their face and they had to learn to pray and trust God. And they had to learn to like, like there's things we can't do. There's things we have to rely on God to do. You know, I can't feed the 5,000 with my wages. We need God to be the bread of life. Like there's a line between me and who got, you know, they learned all that. The apostle Paul, lone ranger missionary, right? No. You look at the end of Romans and the guy had an entourage. Count all the individual names at the end of Romans. Is there 30? Is there 40? He surrounded himself with cohorts of like-minded people. And they learned. You know, Paul, he went to Athens. He listened. Jesus, even with the Pharisees, listened and asked questions. They learned and they listened and they figured out how to make the gospel relevant at their time and in their place for a specific need. And, and uh it's an amazing thing to watch. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. But they would pray and they'd get into the word and they'd figure out how to make an impact. You know, you have individual experiences that you've had that I've not had. And I've had some experiences that you've not had. But you have some expertise that I don't have and vice versa. And so what's it look like if we brought all of our expertise and all of our experiences together and we enlarged our cooperation, and we did something together for the sake of mission, for the sake of achieving this oneness dream of God, of everyone being one with him and each other. I think we do it with cohorts. We do it with collaborative partnerships. We come together, and we want to make disciples. Well, what we've been doing may not be super effective. What do we need to be doing? We come together. We collaborate. You know, if, if you want to reach athletes... There's a fellowship of Christian athletes that got together and they developed a way to reach other athletes. It's called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's a fancy word for cohort. You know, when medical people want to figure out how to solve a problem or a crisis, it's not a bunch of lone rangers. They collaborate and work together and they form learning communities because everyone's bringing their expertise and experiences together, but they realize that new learning is needed in order to solve a problem. When marriages are failing... Couples should get together and figure out, well, how can we fortify all the marriages around us? When families are failing, families ought to get together and say, how can we raise up other godly families? You know, how do we raise up godly group leaders? Godly, you know, when our Bible colleges are failing, how do we step into a space and develop missionaries that go to the end of the earth, you know? This is all of what I'm talking about is that we have to learn to do new things together. So what's the dreaded thing? When you think of involvement in a church, what's the dreaded C word that you hate? It's not the Great Commission. It's not the Great Commandment. Otherwise, we'll have to get you out of here. It's not the Great Collaboration. It's the dreaded committees. There's a C word, right? What happens on a committee? You get these well-intentioned churched people that are kind of isolated and insular and in their own little holy huddle, holy huddle, you get a committee together, right? And we're going to change the world with a committee. But what do committees do? People rely on their past experiences and, and they say, well, we've always done it this way. And this is the only way to do it. And so we're always looking back into the past for the same, right? We have limited experiences and, right, we don't enlarge our experience. We just keep reliving the same old ineffective experiences. And there's no new learning. We're relying on our existing know-how. Well, this is what I know. Nobody's picking up books. Nobody's, you know, networking. Nobody's figuring out new things. We're just 
sharing our ignorance kind of sometimes, you know, in these committees. Using old methods, old strategies. There's low risk. Oh, I'm not going to put any skin in the game, but I'm going to come up with plans and designs for other people to do, right? Uh, No. A cohort is, consists of inspired trailblazers. Inspired by the heart of God. Inspired by the spirit. Inspired by the mission of Jesus, right? And trailblazer I'm going to do something that nobody else is doing, that nobody else has done before. I'm going to go through and, and create a path, right? And I'm going to cut down stuff, and I'm going to, we're going to make a way for the mission of God to advance. Well, that's a trailblazer. That takes faith. That takes courage. It takes a different mindset. You've got to be willing to take risk and, and get cuts and bruises and, and be exhausted and fatigued and danger, right? There's no experts, you're a trailblazer. No one has done this, right? Nobody's reaching who you're trying to reach exactly. And you're doing it filled with prayer because you realize you're more reliant on God than ever before. And you're doing it searching his word because you realize that Jesus was the ultimate trailblazer. And so we're going to the word to, to seek his wisdom. But here's the key. We're not doing it in a classroom in the church building. We're doing it out in the real world with real people that we're meeting, that we're having conversations with, and it's going to require new methods and new strategies. Nehemiah, there was nobody that he could call and say, hey, go go fix the situation in Jerusalem. No, he had to trailblaze his way to Jerusalem, and he had to, like through the word, discover God's plan and purpose, and through prayer rely on God, and that's what brought revival, is he had to get out of a committee mindset into a kind of more of a cohort. Let's learn, let's pray, let's figure this out. Let's get leaders together, let's solve things, let's develop plans, let's dream together. But here's the thing. It's the same gospel. There's one Lord, one faith, one, right? It's the same God. We don't have to reinvent the gospel, but we do have to reinvent our approach. And for that, I'm just laying out some ideas for you to think about. Who are you in conversations with that's far from God? Who are you in a circle with carrying out the commandment, uh, uh, building each other up in love? Who are you on a learning cohort with? Who have you surrounded yourself with and say, let's figure out how to reach our neighborhood. Let's figure out how to reach other professionals like us. Let's figure out how to reach other athletes like us. Let's figure out how to reach other families or marriages or children or the next generation or this nation or this group or You see, may God lead us in these great things. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're asking that you use us as your instruments and your word communicates very clearly some ways that we can be successful in this. And I pray that you would take some of what we've talked about and apply it by your spirit to us and we take steps to grow together. And may you fill the universe for your glory. through us. We pray that we will be faithful and reflect your faithfulness. We pray that we can love as Christ loved. We can pray that we can be servants as Christ was servant. And we pray that we can be the ultimate missionaries as Jesus was the ultimate missionary. Father, give us this vision. Help us internalize it. We pray in your son's name. Amen.